Hello everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. This time, women did not have long to wait for results. Shortly after the new regulations were announced, the Massachusetts State Building and Construction Trade Council, the AFL-CIO, the trade group for all construction unions, sponsored a federally funded program in three cities called the Women in Construction Project, the 32-week program aimed at recruiting card-carrying union members, and it offered pre-apprenticeship training to women in carpentry, electrical work, and plumbing and painting. It also offered physical training in pushing, pulling, and lifting materials, as well as vocational counseling. The latter activity was handled by Women's Enterprises of Boston. The affirmative action program required for federal contractors did bring some women into the male-dominated construction trade, but other federal programs were less productive. Many SETA-funded programs have been cut as part of the general budget slashing. As a result, projects like All Crafts Center have more candidates than funds to service them. Nor can these projects help women who are mired in low-paying clerical jobs. The first 50 longshore women in New York City began work in February 1979 after the New York Waterfront Commission granted them temporary permit to work on the docks. The women won their jobs through the efforts of NOW's Urban Women Project. That project, seeking for women in non-traditional jobs, contacted women when they heard of the temporary job Interestingly enough, the first New York City women dock workers were trained at the All Craft Center. During World War II, women made up 10% of the workforce. However, they were systematically purged from what had suddenly become unsuitable work in spite of the fact that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibiting employment discrimination due to sex made it clearly illegal for the steel companies to refuse to hire women. It has only been since the 1974 consent decree instituting quotas, which resulted from a combination of mass pressure and legal action by black workers and women, that significant numbers of women have begun to make it through the steel mill gates. That decree called for 50% of new apprentices to be minority or female. Teresa D'Agostino, the first woman worker in her Chicago steel mill since World War I, wrote, Black workers were among the first to sense the difficult position I was in and went out of their way to express their support. Later, white workers admitted to her that they had been wrong in opposing her entrance. I was one of those guys who said women workers have no place in a steel mill, one of them told her. But after working with you, well, I feel you got a right to be here. And black steel worker Gloria Kelly 
who worked at the Burns Harbor Workers of Bethlehem Still near Chicago, told a reporter, When we insisted on our right to promotion, we were often forced to do the work to employees. We couldn't have made it at all if it hadn't been for the support and solidarity of a number of our brothers who recognized that discrimination against women was discrimination against them also. Still, women workers active in support of reform candidate Ed Sadlowski unsuccessfully bid for the presidency of the union. Women's caucuses sprang up in the steel plants, taking up not only the question of maternity leave, sanitary facilities, and probationary employees, but also the entry of women into the crafts, greater representation for them in the union itself. The women in District 31 in the Chicago Gary area in the leadership of the movement. Why a caucus? District 31. One women's caucus, Wabalitan asked and it answered. Women still workers from the Chicago and Northeast area started meeting each other for the first time in the District 31 Women's Caucus. We were struck by the fact that the problem which we faced in the workplace, unjust firings during the probationary period, layoffs, lack of sanitary facilities on the job, harassment of pregnant workers and lack of maternity benefits, constant attempts by the companies to violate laws outlawing dangerous conditions, special barriers put up in our past for entering apprenticeship programs, and just plain harassment. These problems were almost the same everywhere. It is clear that the steel industry still has not accepted our presence in the mills and Everything possible is being done to discourage and push us out. As women workers who need our jobs, we have little choice but to fight back. If we just sit back, we're bound to be sent back out the gate. Women still workers need the full women's strength of our union to deal with our problems, and our union needs an active and involved membership to be strong. Our purpose is to activate and educate women still workers in our union's District 31 Women Caucus called for the establishment by the International of a Department of Women's Affairs, the convention of a union-wide conference of women still workers and women's committees on both district and local levels in the union, the expansion and enforcement of affirmative action programs, including pre-apprenticeship opportunities and joint actions by the USWA with other unions to take up the struggle for child care in both the legislative and collective bargaining areas. These are goals that caucuses insisted not just for female USWA members, but every single union member and leader. District 31's Women's Caucus also supported the drive initiated by Sudlowski to organize the unorganized. Noting of special interest to our Women's Caucus is the fact that many of the unorganized workers seeking representation in the USWA are women. Two plants currently being organized are Deza Industries in Forest Park and American Lock in South Chicago Heights. Deza is 85% women and African Americans. Look where a petition for union election has just been filed. Has 200 women employees pressured by the Women's Caucus, the leadership of the USWA came out forcefully for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. As in response to pressure from the Women's Caucus, the USWA took up the struggle against the challenge to affirmative action by Brian Weber. The story began in 1973.
Congress had recently put more teeth into Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, barring discrimination in employment. As a result, the Kaiser Aluminum Company faced numerous Title VII suits with potentially huge back pay liability in the area surrounding Kaiser's plant in Gramercy, Louisiana, where the Weber case originated. 39% of the workforce was black, but there were only five black among the plant's 273 craft workers. In early 1974, Kaiser and the USWA negotiated a collective bargaining agreement covering Kaiser's plants throughout the country. The agreement created a craft training program patterned after a nationwide steel industry plan approved by the court. 50% of those selected for the program were to be from minorities, and the trainees were to be selected based on their seniority within their racial groups. On January 12, 1979, a representative of more than 24 major labor rights and women's groups met in Washington to form a common front in affirmative action programs. In addition, the USWA joined 11 other international unions and the AFL-CIO in filing amicus curiae briefs before the Supreme Court. One such brief was filed on behalf of District 1199 of the National Union of Hospitals and Healthcare Employees. In supporting the goal of affirmative action, the 1199 brief reviewed the accomplishments of its training and upgrading fund in assisting minority workers, mostly women, to advance into technical and professional hospital jobs. The Supreme Court, by a 5-2 decision handed down in June 1979, rejected the reverse discrimination charge. Justice Williams Brennan, writing for the majority, found that Congress had left employers and unions in private sector free to take race-conscious steps to eliminate manifestitial imbalance in traditionally white job categories. Since the agreement had been adopted voluntarily and did not involve state acts, said Brennan, the only issue before the court was whether the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act fair employment provision forbade such a plan. court majority concluded that it did not and commented that it would be ironic, indeed, if a law triggered by national concern over centuries of racial injustice were used to prevent voluntary private measures to overcome inequities. The first break occurred on April 26, 1979, when Alice Perella, a longtime worker at U.S. Steel, was elected president of the 7,000-member Local 65 in Chicago. Running against two men, she polled a plurality of 1,205 votes to their 1,168 and 1,077. In an interview following her victory, the first woman to head a local union in the steel industry, August 1, 1974, was a historic day in western Pennsylvania. On that day, three women went to work at the Bethlehem Mine Corporation's Mine 51 in Ellsworth. One of the women was black, the first black woman miner in Pennsylvania history. A century-old state law had prohibited women from working in the mine, but it was superseded by federal laws against discrimination in employment. Bethlehem, the first major concern to break with tradition and send women underground by November 1978, had become the largest employer of women in the United States, with women working underground in its mines in Kentucky, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. Most of the women currently working in mines got their jobs either as a result of lawsuits against the industry or through pressure from the federal government. 
In Kentucky, West Virginia, and Tennessee, more than a thousand lawsuits and complaints have been filed demanding that coal companies hire women. In 1978, at its insistence, the Department of Labor began an investigation of 153 coal mining companies for allegedly widespread discrimination against women and minorities. The Coal Employment Project also filed an administrative complaint with the Office of Contract Compliance Program in Washington. The complaint cited statistics showing that 99.8% of all mines were all-male and 98% all mining employees were men. It charged that the companies were violating an executive order prohibiting federal contractors from discriminating and sought an order requiring them to hire one woman for every three men in entry-level jobs until women constituted 20% of the workforce. In July 1977, Mary Maynard became the first woman president of the United Mine Workers. Maynard was elected president of UMW Local 1971 of Rum Creek, West Virginia. Her new position, commented the New York Times, points to the case with which women in a decade have come to be accepted in a union that has an image of aggressive masculinity. In 1978, after only a year as a minor, Linda Tripp Hinn was nominated to run for vice president of Local 4172 in, in northern West Virginia. I ran against a man, and I guess people felt i do a good job because they elected me, she told a reporter. June 1978 listing of the census classification system revealed that majorities of women workers existed in only 20 out of 441 occupations. Even more startling is the fact that one-fourth of all women workers worked in only five occupations, secretary, stenographer, household worker, bookkeeper, elementary school teacher, and waitress. Overbill women are heavily concentrated in the service sector and within that sector in the lower paying jobs in such categories. After five years of negotiations, the company defying the U.S. government still refuses to enter a contract in Roanoke Rapids. Nevertheless, the union is the certified bargaining agent and the company must notify it in advance of all firings, disciplinary actions, and other changes in wages and working conditions. The union has the right to examine certain company records and to negotiate these items. Both the federal government and the ILGWU have acknowledged that in New York City there are 500 sweatshops where women work at machines sewing dresses, small, grim, Dress factories, as the New York Times reported in September 1979, the shops are situated in dank cellars and railing lofts, in barricaded storefronts and back alley garages, in dingy attics and run-down apartments. They exploit minorities and illegal aliens, paying wages below the federal minimum wage of $12 an hour, often operating from sunrise to sunset, but not paying for overtime and sending out cut fabric for illegal sewing at home. They prey on the fears of workers who worry about losing their jobs or being deported as illegal aliens. One of the sweatshop workers told the Times reporter that some of the women were paid as little as 75 cents a dress. She herself took bundles home to sew so she could watch over her two young children while she worked. I pick up a bundle every week, 
They told me last week they would pay me a dollar ten a dress, but when I took back twelve dresses, they said they couldn't pay me until later. They just keep you hanging. Then you do some more work because you hope you'll be paid if you do it. I need the money, but it's very unfair the way they treat us. During the 1940s, the ILGWU had built a membership of over 20,000 in Los Angeles. With the influx of undocumented workers, however, that number had dwindled to less than 7,000 by 1975. In that year, the ILGW leadership decided to abandon its previous policy of shunning undocumented workers and set out to organize the estimated 80,000 garment workers in Los Angeles, most of whom undocumented women from Mexico. It was the first organizing effort by a major union among undocumented workers. As Philip Russo, the ILGW's chief organizer in Los Angeles noted, the union had decided to break from the labor movement's traditional no-alien stance after revealing it would have to represent illegal aliens if it was going to continue representing garment workers. By 1979, other unions had decided to adopt a similar policy. The United Farm Workers signed a contract significantly covering undocumented farm workers. The Retail Clerks Union began a drive to organize them in some occupations in California, and the state's garment industries, three unions, the ILGWU, ACTWU, and the United Garment Workers have undertaken to organize undocumented workers as well. As of 1965, 35% of black women workers were domestic servants and only 990 had clerical jobs. But by 1974, some 25% of the black women who were in the labor force had clerical jobs. And the percentage of black women who were in the labor force had clerical jobs. And the percentage of black women who were servants had fallen to 11%. In 1963, white women earned an average of 36% more than black women. By 1973, the difference was 12%, and by May 1974, the gap had been reduced to only 7%. Marge Albert, a pioneer in the effort to organize clerical workers in New York City, an organizer for District 65 wrote in the New York Times, the beginning of the new spirit in offices came a few years ago, 1969-1970, when employers imposed dress codes that decreed we couldn't wear pants to work. Women rebelled. They petitioned, sent delegations to management, or simply agreed that on a particular day they'd all wear pants. Employers who thought their girls were immune to subversive ideas of feminism found these women suddenly making demands to be treated with respect, to earn more money, to define their duties, to advance and get fringe benefits other workers enjoy. In Boston, a group of several hundred women founded 9 to 5 in 1973. The organization drew up an Office Workers' Bill of Rights demanding equal pay and promotion opportunities detailed job descriptions, maternity benefits, overtime pay, and the right to refuse to do personal errands for the employer. Through leafleting, meetings, and speaking out, they organized surveys of working conditions. Nine to five mobilized women in Boston's large publishing and insurance industry. It also filed sex discrimination suits, picketed target companies, and pressured government agencies for strict enforcement of anti-discrimination laws.
And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.